Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. The way I describe it is on a sunny, uh, snowy day, Sarah would be up at six years of age, seven years of age, eight years of age, and she'd be out doing runs on the hill, on the sled. And I used to, uh, mother, you're, you're wet, you're going to school wet, wait till three o'clock in the afternoon. You can wait till three o'clock. She'd say, Mom, what if the sun comes out and there's no snow? I gotta do it now. And she lived her life that way, her short little life of nine years in utter joy, uh, completely loving life. And I guess that's the hardest part. She loved life so much. And Barbara, you certainly don't have closure because you don't know where Sarah is. Well, every investigator who's worked on the case feels without question that she was kidnapped and murdered shortly after she was taken and her body disposed of so that we will never find it. Um, so that, uh, that, that piece is um, reality to me. But I think what we all share is that we would do anything, and I speak for all of you, um, that no parent or family or friends uh, have to go through what we've gone through, that uh, the justice system doesn't serve the victim and the victim's family. Yeah, this is a, a residential area in Wayland. You've lived here six weeks. Sarah has a bowl of jello, says, I'll see you later, Dad. For the first time, I'm going to walk without my dog mm -hmm. because she was shy mm -hmm. and she was getting brave. And on a very busy street. Did which... they have to work very hard to get her into oh, that yeah. car? Oh, yeah. They figure about, about an hour. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. And on this week's show, we'll be examining the case of the 1985 abduction of Sarah Pryor from Wayland, Massachusetts. I would like to thank a listener for suggesting this story, as I've done episodes on the cases of Molly Bish and Holly Peranian, and the listener suggested I look into the case of Sarah Pryor. While doing so, I also found another case connected loosely to the Pryor case, and that is 16-year-old Kathy Malcolmson. Kathy was on her way to work at the IGA supermarket when she was abducted, and she's actually never been found. The listener, who is from the Massachusetts area where these abductions took place, said there had been some talk that Sarah's case may also be connected to Holly and Molly's cases. So I decided to look into the prior mystery, and I was a little surprised by what I found. One of the similarities I began to see was the geography of the area and how close these incidents took place to one another. Where Sarah was taken from is an hour from where Holly went missing, but all these cases occurred just off the Massachusetts Turnpike. Now, it may be a stretch to think these cases could be connected, but it doesn't mean that the idea should be totally discounted. There are books and documentaries that talk about how the construction of the interstate enabled a new type of killer. They basically suggest the idea that it became easier to get from one scene to another with much greater ease. Whatever the case, these three were close to the turnpike, and you can read into that angle as much as you'd like. Another thing that stood out to me was the progression of ages of the victims. Sarah is the youngest at nine years old, followed by Holly, who was 10, and then Molly, who was 16. Now, these all occurred at different points in time, so I'm just saying that I find the ages interesting. I don't really have a reason for why that may matter, but I just think it's worth noting in my honest opinion. 
So thank you again to the listener for the suggestion. And let's jump into this week's episode of Who Killed Sarah Pryor. October 9th, 1985 was a typical cool day in New England. Nine-year-old Sarah Pryor decided to leave her parents' house to check out her new neighborhood. She had just moved to town only six weeks before. And like any other 1980s child, she put on some music in her Walkman and went on an exploration of her new stomping grounds. It was just a month and a half before that Sarah and her parents and her 15-year-old sister and 17-year-old brother had moved to the area from McMurray, Pennsylvania. From all reports I've seen, she was just like any other adventurous child. Sarah wanted to know what her new world was all about, and she felt like there was no need to be concerned for her safety. I mean, Whalen is pretty rural. But she never returned, leading her family into what her father, Andrew, described to the press at the time as, quote, an horrendous nightmare. Police and a search party of over 2,000 volunteers searched for Sarah for a week, with each day turning up nothing that moved the investigation in the right direction. The search included an eight-square-mile area in Wayland, Lincoln, Sudbury, Concord, and Weston, and there were no signs of Sarah. Mounted police and volunteers on horseback, along with the Boston PD's K-9 unit, participated in the expansive search. The chief of police at the time said that since the family had recently moved to the area, they didn't know much about them, so it was tougher to find out who or where they would be hanging out. What the chief didn't realize at the time was this was going to become a mystery that he would actually be connected to for the rest of his life. And I'm sure most police officers or detectives don't think about how a case may impact them in the long term. But as listeners of this program know, Chief of Police Mark Spetzel has been connected to the Amy Mihaljevic case for the entirety of his career. It's always a possibility when you catch a missing person case that it will stay with you forever. Not likely, but by all means possible. The Boston Globe reported in their 1985, October 15th edition that police said they were moving the investigation to Sarah's hometown in Pennsylvania. The search in McMurray, Pennsylvania, did not turn up anything that had anything to do with Sarah. Investigators were actually forced to admit they only based the search on the belief that she may be feeling homesick since she had recently moved. Now, Wayland is a quiet, usually peaceful town of 15,000, course until they're not as we've all come to learn from an article that bella english wrote for the boston globe for a 30-year retrospective on the prior case much of what i'm going to tell you comes from the article that she wrote titled a reunion party 30 years after the worst time of her life and it was published on november 4th 2015 now the widely reported story goes like this sarah had just finished eating a dish of jello which she had made for herself she watched a tv show And that's when she told her dad that she was going out. Her father said, aren't you going to clean that dish of jello? And she said, I'll clean it when I get back. Andrew Pryor said, she walked out the front door and I never saw her again. According to Wayland police officers, Sarah walked north on Concord Road for approximately one and a half miles. Several people saw her as she walked. Then she disappeared, according to the police. We don't know exactly where. It is our belief that she was abducted. But we have no crime scene no witnesses, and no physical evidence. We do not know what happened to this child. Now, Sarah was described as your basic average, happy-go-lucky nine-year-old girl, and she was very shy around strangers. 
She was very much a family-oriented child, and she was very athletic. She also did well in school. Sarah was never seen again, but the photo of the blonde girl with a gap-toothed grin remained rooted in the minds of many. The case of Sarah Pryor captured the imagination of not just greater Boston, but the entire country. Three weeks after the disappearance of their sister, the Pryor kids returned to school and her mom returned to work to try to bring some sense of normalcy to their lives. According to an article from the Boston Globe in December 1985, Sarah's parents offered a reward of $30,000 for the return of their daughter. Lieutenant Gerald Galvin was in charge of dealing with the media and keeping them up to date with the latest developments in the Sarah Pryor case. Galvin had told the Boston Globe that the community was rallying behind the family and that the phones had been ringing off the hook. Galvin had made a statement in the same article that gives you a better idea of the terrain around where the Pryors lived. He said there are about 80 acres of swampland behind their home and is considered pretty rural. Now, the hefty reward was announced at a press conference. The conference had been arranged to discuss the state of the case. They announced that they had created a reward committee and a hotline for people to use if they have information about their daughter. Once the hotline was created, the tips started to pour in. Some of value, most of not. Unfortunately, when you have a missing child, you must take all the tips, good or bad. And this is most likely how the search moved to Rhode Island. As if this case wasn't mysterious enough, the police received an anonymous letter directing them to the state of Rhode Island. Investigators had to take all tips seriously, even if the Rhode Island search turned out to be just another red herring. Especially since the letter was the second of its kind, and since authorities had nothing else to go on, Rhode Island, off they went. Now, both letters had Boston postmarks. They were examined for fingerprints, and being 1985 and all, they didn't really have much else to go on. I wasn't able to find if they actually caught the person who sent the letters, but they were clearly sending the investigation into a different direction. As I've come to notice through a lot of these missing person cases, there seems to be a lot of common tropes that occur after a child goes missing, and one of those is the candlelight vigil. Sarah's case was no different, and on November 24, 1985, about 100 family members and friends gathered at the Church for the Holy Spirit to show the support for the prior family. Now, Sarah had been missing for more than a month and a half at this time, and as the time moved on and there was no sign of Sarah, the writing was on the wall she was most likely not going to be coming home. Five days after Sarah disappeared, the search was in full swing. Unfortunately, despite all of the searches and having all of their resources at their disposal, including helicopters, canine units, mounted police, they were unable to find any trace of the missing girl. As the days, weeks, and eventually months started to go by, the hard truth was beginning to set in there was a real likelihood that she would never be coming home. Sarah would go on to miss holidays, birthdays, and all of the things a young girl should experience. While the police searched fruitlessly in Rhode Island, the search was halted during the holidays. And in my opinion, this would have been a good time for the investigation to take stock of what they have found 
or whether or not they were following a bunk lead. As the one and only John Walsh says, it is vital for the family to keep the story in the news. It is one of those important and awful things that a parent has to do because the news is the news, and they do like to move on to the next story. The local news can be a family's best friend if they have a missing child. They can take more time to focus on the minutiae of a search and also be there for any press conferences the family may hold. The national news is another beast altogether. They will be there at the beginning and at the end, but don't expect them to be there the whole time. As Sarah's case became less and less likely that it would be solved, soon the news coverage began to slow down. In searchingnewspapers.com, there are plenty of stories written about her case, but you can also see when the hope begins to fade. As the hope began to dwindle, the family took John Walsh's advice and began making national news appearances. The first stop was NBC. Sarah Pryor's case first aired on January 22, 1986, as part of Missing. Have you seen this person? It was special number two, and it was hosted by Meredith Baxter Burney and her husband. Meredith Baxter Burney was famous from the 1980s sitcom The Family Ties, or Family Ties, I apologize. This was NBC's first foray into the unsolved mystery world, and the success of the specials actually spawned every 80s child's favorite or scariest crime show, Unsolved Mysteries. As with all missing children cases, search parties were formed. Quickly, the tracker dogs were brought in, and the search continued. Sarah Pryor and Kathy Malcolmson's case were featured on another NBC show, Adam, His Song Continues. I believe you can still find it on YouTube. Along with the standard search methods, missing posters were printed and placed in store windows. Yellow ribbons were placed on light posts, trees, and mailboxes, just hoping for the day that Sarah would come home. As time passed and there was no sign of Sarah, the ribbons began to fade, as did the hopes of the searchers and of her family. According to SouthCoastToday.com, for months after she disappeared while riding her bike to her summer job at the supermarket, police believed 16-year-old Catherine Malcolmson had run away from home. Then her bicycle turned up and their thoughts turned to kidnapping and murder. Once investigators changed their approach to the Malcolmson's 1985 disappearance, they began to think there may be a link to the abduction of Sarah Pryor. Investigators in the Malcolmson case had little, if any, physical evidence to go by. Kathy remains missing to this day. Middle Essex County District Attorney Tom Riley said the same person could have been responsible for both crimes. Quote, do I know it to be a fact? No, I can't say that. But do I believe them to be related? I certainly do, Riley said. In 1987, Assistant District Attorney John McAvoy and other investigators made their way through the snowy woods near Stowe, where a man had found Kathy's bicycle a year earlier. According to the archives of the Middle Essex News and the Telegram and Gazette of Worcester, the man told police about the bicycle in 1987 after hearing that they were searching for it in the Assabet River. By the time state lab technicians had gotten a hold of it, the bicycle had seen better days. Malcolmson's mother, Mary, said that the last time she saw her was on August 13, 1985, when she set out for the three-mile bike ride from Stowe to the IGA supermarket in Hudson. 
Kathy never arrived for her cashier's shift. Police said they originally believed she was a runaway. But the way the man described finding the bicycle in the woods off of Route 62, where she had been riding, led investigators to believe she had been attacked. She was wearing a short-sleeved, striped shirt, blue jeans, a silver ring, and two bracelets when she became missing. Kathy's case remains open today. Though prosecutors did not want to talk about specifics, they do acknowledge that John Robert Wordy is a suspect in the Pryor's abduction. Wordy is in a Texas prison on a parole violation. In 1966, he attacked a 12-year-old girl in his hometown. Wordy was from Shearborn, Massachusetts, a small suburb of Boston. Wordy's hometown would have been off the interstate, and he could have made it to Sturbridge the day Holly was abducted. Even though forensic evidence tied a dead convict, David Poulet, to the Peranian case, or the crime scene, I should say, they were never able to charge him, or they never pursued any charges further than the DNA explanation. So the cases of Sarah, Holly, and Molly do have some connections that are worth exploring. If the authorities aren't naming Poulette as the perpetrator of Holly's death, it leads me to believe that they may have more DNA that doesn't match that of Poulet or Poulette. He was not about to stand trial for this, and Wordy quickly went on the lam before trial. It was in Texas that he was arrested and convicted for killing and raping a 15-year-old Dallas girl. In 1984, Wordy was finally paroled, and much to the dismay of the townspeople, he moved back to Shearborn. He gained employment by installing swing sets. This is why he gets associated with the prior case. He was working in the Wayland area when Pryor vanished on October 1985. Only a few months had passed when Wordy's life of crime came to another halt as he was placed under a citizen's arrest because he was seen trying to force a 20-year-old woman into a car at knife point. After only serving five years for that assault, he was released. But he was also returned to Texas for violating his parole. Wordy was convicted in connection with the abduction attempt in Newton around the same time that Sarah disappeared. Police questioned Wordy in the prior case, but they never charged him. As is common in missing child cases, her parents separated because being with one another just continues to produce so much grief. And when Sarah vanished in 1985, the Daily News reported that she was last seen walking along Route 126 in Wayland, which was near the Lincoln town line. In February 1986, the Boston Globe dropped a new theory that must have come from the police. The theory said Sarah was taken to the Columbia Point Housing Project in Dorchester shortly after she was abducted. So after the search in Rhode Island didn't pan out, investigators began searching abandoned homes in that area. Those searches also turned up nothing. Detectives and investigators were running out of ideas. The Boston FBI thought one of their most trusted criminal informants could be of good use. So the Boston Globe reported on September 12, 1997, about the length investigators were willing to go to find Sarah. And what happened next could be a scene right out of a Scorsese movie. Because what happened was investigators turned to reputed crime boss Whitey Bulger, 
for help. Now, if you know the Amy Mahalovic case that I have covered extensively, you'll know that Phil Torsney, who is a special agent on the task force for the Mahalovic case, was also one of the agents that brought in Whitey Bulger when he was on the run. Just a little side note. So the FBI believed that he could help them gather information about the prior case. And what I'm going to read is most of the article because it's almost too crazy to believe. So from that article, it states, In what can only be described as a Hail Mary to solve the kidnapping of nine-year-old Sarah Pryor from 1985, the FBI turned to the infamous South Boston crime boss, James J. Whitey Bulger, for help. This, according to law enforcement sources. Bulger and Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy were secretly working as FBI informants when agents told them that a man from Bulger's South Boston neighborhood was suspected of abducting Sarah on October 9, 1985, from her Wayland neighborhood and killing her, sources said. This was when Bulger was still being used by the FBI, and he was still the king of the Boston undergrounds. He was so pissed off after being told the name of the suspect, as he reportedly paid at least two visits to the 22-year-old at the Lawrence House of Correction, where he was already serving time for breaking and entering. I can only imagine seeing this in some dramatized version, where a Bulger associate grilled the suspect about the nine-year-old's disappearance. Sources said Bulger stood ominously quiet nearby. The sources also said that later the terrified suspect told authorities he believed that Bulger's crew was going to kill him. Whatever tactics Bulger may have used to hear the suspect out, he later concluded to the FBI that the individual in custody probably had nothing to do with Sarah's kidnapping. Bulger was a mob boss with a penchant for torture, so one can only imagine how he came to this conclusion. But Bulger's instincts proved right. The FBI in Boston eliminated the man as a suspect when the woman who implicated him admitted that she was lying in an effort to collect a reward. Despite Bulger's efforts, Sarah remained missing, and the case remained unsolved. But the jailhouse episode is likely to inflame an ongoing debate being played out in federal court over the FBI's relationship with Bulger who has been a fugitive since January 1995. Bulger's co-defendants, Flemmy, reputed New England mob boss Francis Cadillac Frank Salemi, and three alleged underlings have accused the government of misconduct for failing to divulge information about its informants. When faced with a court order this year, the FBI conceded that Bulger and Flemmy were FBI informants from 1971 to 1990. The extent of their cooperation is detailed in documents that remain sealed. When asked about Bulger's assistance in the investigation, FBI spokesman Peter Ganares said, I am not prepared to confirm nor deny the information. Law enforcement officials say it's appropriate and routine for investigators to reach out to underworld informants when trying to crack high-profile cases, especially when a life is at risk. But defense lawyers say it's dangerous to use a known criminal as an agent of the government. Quote, if I was Sarah's father, I could care less how they found her killer, said prominent Boston defense lawyer Thomas M. Hoops, a former prosecutor and past chairman of the Massachusetts Bar Association's criminal section. But speaking as a defense attorney, it's a terrible thing for the government to use a guy like Whitey Bulger to go shaking down people and terrorizing them. Hoop said using an underworld figure like Bulger as an agent of the good is making the line that law enforcement likes to keep so bright non-existent. 
But an investigator familiar with the prior investigation said, We were trying to solve a kidnapping and murder of a nine-year-old girl. We turned to Whitey and Stevie like you would turn to any other source. Who else are you going to use? It was early 1986 when Laura Hawkins of Roxbury told investigators that she was with two men when they abducted Sarah Pryor, raped her, and killed her, and then dumped her body at the Columbia Point Housing Project in Dorchester. But the Roxbury and South Boston men identified by Hawkins insisted they were innocent, and an exhaustive search of the projects by the FBI, Wayland, Boston, and state police failed to lead to Sarah. So investigators turned to Bulger and Flemmy, hoping that they could pressure the South Boston man into a confession. Quote, the message was to tell us where the body was, said an investigator. Quote, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. After flunking a polygraph, Hawkins admitted she had lied and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Middle Essex District Attorney Thomas F. Riley, who has handled the prior investigation, said he was unaware of Bulger's involvement, but quickly added, Quote, but if it happened, I certainly appreciate the help and the intervention. Riley said it was, quote, certainly a plus for Whitey Bulger if he was trying to help us. Norfolk District Attorney Jeffrey A. Locke, who prosecuted Hawkins' case, said he was also unaware of Bulger's involvement. Locke wouldn't comment on the appropriateness of the FBI's use of Bulger, but noted that generally informants are invaluable tools to criminal investigations. So it was basically one of those things that you would literally see in a gangster film where they turn to the most notorious crime boss to try to get the information that the police were looking for. So in my opinion, if Whitey Bulger believed the suspect wasn't the guy, then he wasn't the guy. But in another note regarding Bulger, he would go on the lam in 1995 when he was tipped off by his FBI handler and friend John Connolly. And a federal jury in Massachusetts convicted John Connolly in 2002 for protecting Bulger's gang from prosecution and tipping them off about informants in their ranks. He was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison in that case. Now in South Florida, jurors convicted Connolly of murder for telling Bulger and his cohort that an executive with the Highlight operation in Miami Miami might cooperate in the probe of an earlier mob murder. Bulger sent a hitman to fatally shoot the executive, John Callahan. His body was found in the trunk of a Cadillac at Miami's International Airport. Whatever friends Connolly thought he had in the underworld abandoned him and then testified for the prosecution. Sarah Pryor's case would remain a missing person until a discovery in 1995 changed the circumstances of the search. From an interview from Patch.com, Wayland Police Chief said that his biggest unsolved case is the disappearance and murder of nine-year-old Sarah Pryor. It was in 1995 that a hunter was making his way through the woods with his dog when he discovered a skull fragment. And it was that skull fragment that was turned over to the medical examiner. But unfortunately... It was 1995, and according to the district attorney, Thomas Riley, without any advancements in technology, the ME was unable to make a positive identification back in 1995. So in early 1997, a forensic anthropologist examined the remains and determined that they were those of a child around Sarah's age. The anthropologist also said the remains had been in the woods from anywhere from 3 to 15 years. According to the article, the district attorney's office turned to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology for help with DNA identification. Now, the institute doesn't take 
many non-military cases, typically the scientists there work on the recovery of soldiers missing from Vietnam. From the remains that were provided, the scientists were able to retrieve several strands of nuclear DNA. But without a sample of nuclear DNA from Sarah's body, they were unable to determine if it was a match. But instead, in late November, they pulled out 12 strands of mitochondrial DNA, a type of DNA passed from mother to daughter. And that's when Riley's office asked Barbara Pryor and her daughter Meg for blood samples. The samples, which went to the laboratory December 22nd, 1997, showed that they had found the object of their search, the skull was that of Sarah Pryor. Residents said the neighbor who found the skull in the woods was told by police not to tell anyone. So when the hunter made his discovery and he thought the fragments seemed out of place, he definitely did the right thing by turning the bones over to the medical examiner. But with the bone fragments being found only four miles from Sarah's home, I think it makes the discovery a little bit more interesting and a little bit more concerning. The science used to determine the bones were from Sarah came from mitochondrial DNA. And this is the type of DNA that is passed from mother to daughter. And it would taking some time to make a positive identification, but they finally announced that it was Sarah in January 1998. And the family actually laid her to rest on the day that she would have turned 22. It was at this point the mysterious disappearance went from a missing child to a murder case. The case remains unsolved, but police and the district attorney believe they have a prime suspect. A month after Sarah went missing, a paroled murderer became the prime suspect when he attempted to kidnap a young girl from a nearby neighborhood. Circumstantial evidence placed him on Sarah's path the day of her disappearance. That is despite a questionable confession and multiple suspects throughout the years. Their prime suspect failed two lie detector tests after Sarah was abducted. Texas killer John Wirty is the man authorities believe is responsible for both murders. Wirty is a Massachusetts native who investigators believe kidnapped both Sarah Pryor and another girl, Kathy Malcolmson, 17, whose remains were never found. Wordy was charged with trying to kidnap a Newton woman at knife point a month after Sarah's disappearance. After serving five years for attempted kidnapping, he was transferred back to Texas for imprisonment on a parole violation. Wordy is serving a life sentence in that state for the 1967 murder of 15-year-old Rose Marie Martin. He comes up for parole every five years, and Barbara Pryor has said she will do everything in her power to keep him behind bars. The investigation into Sarah's disappearance was unable to find any sign of her. The authorities were pulling out all the stops. They used psychics, TV, talk shows, hotlines, posters, and even turned to one of Boston's most notorious gangsters for help. So let's take a moment to look at a few factors that were at play in 1985. Sarah was nine years old when she disappeared on October 9th. She went for a walk on a sunny afternoon near her home in Wayland, Mass. The family had just moved from Pittsburgh just six weeks earlier. The case Sarah of Sarah Pryor wasn't just local, but it went national. This was the day before Amber Alerts, so there wasn't much communication between authorities. And this was an era where kids had a lot more freedom than kids have today. So much like Chief Mark Spetzel, the police chief in Wayland has been with the prior disappearance since the beginning. And he quote says, Sarah's disappearance changed the rules for kids playing. They had the full run of the playground before, and after, 
parents throughout the country insisted on knowing where their children were. You can tell by listening to Barbara Pryor that she has become very comfortable with the idea of talking about the disappearance of her daughter. And it is very important to note that Miss Pryor would go on these shows while her daughter was actually still missing. She put herself out there and was a rock for people who needed her. And really, it's amazing what strength that this woman had. I cannot imagine the pain that this must have caused, but it is just another example of how strong people can be. In a really weird sort of events, a very odd discovery in Germany took place in 1987, and that was when an American journalist was visiting Germany and was looking at the western side of the Berlin Wall when he noticed a scribbling and wrote it down. In the graffiti, it stated, Sarah Pryor, wherever you are, we love you. Age 9, missing, October 9th, 1985, Whalen, Massachusetts, USA, God love you. Now, the reporter recorded this in his notebook, and it actually prompted an article by Bob Green of the Chicago Tribune in an article titled, A Peculiar Find About a Missing Girl. And Green writes, American journalist Martin Yant was traveling in Germany, and he made a point of visiting the Berlin Wall. He was surprised at one thing. The western side of the wall was covered with graffiti. Some of it was artistic and colorful. Some of it was merely slogans written in German. How odd, he thought. Somehow it had never occurred to him that there would be graffiti on the Berlin Wall. Yant was staring at the wall, and out of nowhere, he saw something that startled him. Amid all the drawings and scrawlings and German words, there was that sign about Sarah. So, what did it mean? Was there really a Sarah Pryor? Was she really missing? So what Yant did, as any reporter would do, he started picking up the phone and made phone calls and found out that there actually was a missing Sarah Pryor from a town called Whalen, Massachusetts, and he reached out to the uh, chief of police. And this is when you kind of have to just shake your head and wonder how in the world did this happen, but Williams said that Whalen police were aware of the graffiti, but they did not have any idea or reason to believe that it had anything to do with the actual abduction of Sarah Pryor. Even the police chief went on to say that it makes no sense at all. Asked if he had any theories about what happened to Sarah, his response was not the positive or the silver lining you've probably been looking for, because his response was, my personal feeling... I do not believe that she is alive. I believe she was the victim of foul play. That is my personal opinion. We continue to investigate the case. Chief Williams said, I work on this case every day. I made a promise to the parents that I will never stop. Williams said that Wayland is a quiet, peaceful town with a population of 15,000. Sarah Pryor, he said, was your basic, average, happy-go-lucky girl, and she was shy around strangers, as I had mentioned before. Again, as I had mentioned earlier, that one of the common things you see in missing children's cases is parents are apt to, one, not move because in case the child re returns home, and two, they like to keep the bedroom exactly the same way when the child disappeared, and Sarah's bedroom was no different. I'm not exactly sure how long they kept it that way, but it was definitely one of those things that they did to keep the hope alive. You know, Barbara Pryor was never one to shy away from talking about her daughter. And from all the research I have seen, she was someone that people actually 
reached out to when they actually would have like a missing persons case of their own. And it's such a shame that she had to go through losing a daughter in such a horrific way. 34 years have now passed since the abduction and murder of Sarah Pryor. If her body had been found sooner, investigators may have more evidence to work with. But then again, this was 1985, and the word DNA was only something you'd hear in a research lab, if anywhere. So do I believe that these cases are all connected? I'm not sure. I believe some of these cases have common similarities, and the location to the highway cannot be understated. I think Holly and Molly cases are most likely connected, but I'm not convinced those cases are connected to Sarah's and Kathy's cases. Could they all be related? I wouldn't rule it out, because the close proximity to the turnpike... It is unfortunate, but it is true. Truck drivers make the perfect serial killers. And this is not my opinion. That is the opinion of the FBI. They actually said during the announcement of the Highway Serial Killings Initiative, the nation's top law enforcement agency noted, quote, if there is such a thing as an ideal profession for a serial killer, it may well be as a long-haul truck driver. The FBI went on to say in 2004, an analyst from the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation detected a crime pattern. The bodies of murdered women were being dumped along the Interstate 40 corridor in Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, and Mississippi. An analyst and a police colleague from the Grapevine, Texas Police Department referred these cases to the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, or VICAP, as it's better known, where the analysts looked at other records in the database to see if there were similar patterns of highway killings elsewhere. And it turns out there was. So they launched an extensive effort to support their state and local partners with open investigations into any highway murders. The Highway Serial Killings Initiative is meant to raise awareness among law enforcement agencies and the general public about this issue and their unique assistance on these cases. This is where the theory about a serial killer hits a speed bump. The FBI said the victims in the cases they were looking at were women who were living high-risk, transient lifestyles, often involving substance abuse and prostitution. These victims are frequently picked up at truck stops or service stations and sexually assaulted, murdered, and dumped along a highway. This is where the theory really hits the wall, since these victims would not have been in the vicinities of truck stops. But the FBI goes on to say the suspects are predominantly long-haul truck drivers. There are a variety of reasons why these cases are so hard to solve, and they note that it's partly because of the mobile nature of the offenders, the unsafe lifestyles of the victims, the distances that these perpetrators travel and the jurisdictions involved, and then the scarcity of witnesses or any forensic evidence that also make these cases near impossible to solve. In the study, though, VICAP analysts created a national matrix of more than 500 murder victims from along or near highways, as well as a list of some 200 potential suspects. Names of suspects were contributed by law enforcement agencies. Those suspects are examined by analysts who develop timelines using a variety of reliable sources of information. Through the Highway Serial Killer Initiative, 10 suspects believed to be responsible for some 30 homicides have been placed in custody. This includes a trucker arrested in Tennessee who was charged with four murders and another trucker charged with one murder in Massachusetts and another in New Jersey. The idea that Sarah was abducted by a truck driver seems unlikely. 
But I won't totally rule it out since there is still nobody in prison for her death. Do I think it is more likely that John Wordy is involved in Kathy and Sarah's abductions? I'm going to have to use Occam's razor here and say most likely Wordy is the perpetrator. Now, the family of Sarah Pryor keeps Sarah's spirit alive with a website, Sarah, and that's S-A-R-A dot org, and it stands for Search and Rescue Association. The site is designed to help people find missing and endangered people and then reunite them with their families. I just only hope that there is some peace in the prior family because when you lose a child, I can only imagine how tough it is to put one foot in front of the other each and every day. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This will help support the show and keep the cases that I cover in the spotlight. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered throughout the past year and a half, you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. I have a bunch of new shows in the pipeline as well, so you can find that information on my Twitter handle as well. The FBI would like to know if you have any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of nine-year-old Sarah Pryor. So anyone with information concerning this case, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again for listening. And as always, until next time, stay healthy and be safe. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.